Happy New Year and welcome to our first Convex Conversation of 2023 with me, broadcaster Helen Fosbero. January is often a time of fresh starts and well-intended resolutions, but for some of us, it can be a low month. The excitement of the holidays has passed and another year of uncertainty looms, often along with negative thoughts, made worse this year for millions by the cost of living crisis. So it seems a perfect time to chat to mental health and well-being practitioner Cameron Beddy for tips on understanding how our minds work, techniques we can use to take control of our lives, be more mentally and emotionally present, and find some inner peace. Some of Cameron's work is inspired by his own personal struggles, as well as the learnings from helping thousands of clients living sometimes for decades and often in silence with an emotional and mental weight pulling them down. In his latest book, The Anxiety Antidote, Cameron shows us how to be the alchemist of our own personal anxiety antidote and get back to feeling our old selves. And in Your Mind is Your Home, he gives a fascinating insight into how to cope with the world we experience in our heads and the power of transforming how we live inside our minds. Cameron, Happy New Year. How are you? I'm very well. Happy New Year, Helen. Thank you for having me today. Oh, it's a real treat. As you know, I've followed you for a long time on Instagram, Mm. and I get a lot of pleasure from the messages and the thoughts that you post almost on a daily basis. And if I'm honest with you, Cameron, you often set my day when I'm having my little takeaway coffee every day, sitting outside, I read your words and you really do set the day up for me. So thank thank you. Is January traditionally a tough time, do you think, for a lot of people? I think it can be. I think it really can be because just as you've mentioned, the expectation of a year ahead. And I personally feel quite excited for a new year or kind of rejuvenated after a bit of a break going into a new period. But I know for a lot of people, it can be an overwhelming time. And I personally think one of the reasons it can be overwhelming is when people think of a year as a whole. So if you're trying to work on something that's so big, that's so long, it can feel like, wow, how am I going to cope with what's ahead or manage this? And we can't take on too many things. And I think for a lot of people, they either feel excited and there's new energy or people feel a sense of overwhelm. And I think a way to deal with that is to not think of it as a year, but actually maybe just bring it back to a month. You're stepping into a new month or even a new week. And what can you do in that month or what can you do in that week or even then take each month as it comes? Because it can be very common not to just feel overwhelmed, but then one thing can happen that doesn't go how we want it or life can have one of its bumps. And then suddenly people can write a whole year off and then they're waiting for the next year. So for me personally, I I feel very excited for it, but I try to take it week by week, month by month. Take it in bite-sized chunks. Mm. I think that's really good advice. It's funny because I'm the kind of person in life that generally, whatever I'm going through, even if it's difficult times, my cup always overfloweth and I try and use simple pleasures to light up my day. Mm. But New Year's Eve is the only night of the year that I don't like. And it Mm. is the only day of the year that I feel a bit blue. And I think it's because I worry about what the next year might hold on downside. So this year was a bit dramatic because we lost my 87-year-old dad. Mm. But I don't 
feel the excitement that I probably should. So I'm going to try and take your advice and mm. look at it in a different kind of way this year. Mm. I mean, do people, do you think, feel overwhelmed sometimes about what the new year is going to hold and what might happen in that new year? I think so, because it is like going into the unknown. But the reality is we go into the unknown every day and every week. And I guess we've got something or some things to possibly measure against. So we will probably measure what could be coming up to what's previously happened in the last six or 12 months. And then that measurement is, was it good? Was it bad? Was it easy? And then, you know, so that leads us to think ahead for the time ahead. How is that time going to be? Which again, I think comes back to those feelings of feeling uncomfortable or overwhelmed. But if you think about when you're in the flow of the months and the weeks, that tends to reside. And we're not thinking so far ahead. But I think you are definitely right. And as you were saying, I felt it in the past myself, that New Year's Eve feeling or even New Year's Day feeling that slump. And I think it's because we sit there with this trajectory of this time ahead of us and all these thoughts that we can go through of what could happen, what has happened, and it leaves us in a bit of a vulnerable space. It certainly does. Now, your latest book, which I'm clutching a copy of, it feels very nice. I love paperbacks and it's mm. got a well, very you. nice kind of feel to it. It's called The Anxiety Antidote. And it, in fact, it came out only a few weeks ago. Mm. What inspired this particular book, Cameron? I started this book writing it in the first lockdown where we were all kind of at home in a very uncertain period of all of our lives where we didn't really know what was going on in the country, globally, in our own lives, with our work lives, everything. You know, we were all adjusting back to just being grounded, I guess. And I thought for a lot of people, uncertainty leads to anxiety because I had the time and the space to reflect on that. What I was going through, what people were possibly going through. I started to think about my work and the way that I work with people around their mind and their feelings and emotions towards anxiety. And I thought, well, it's a perfect time now to start writing about explaining anxiety, explaining how it's experienced mentally, emotionally, physically, and also most importantly, a variety of ways on how to work with your own anxiety. We're definitely going to look for some tips in a minute mm. on how to work with our own anxiety. But it's a, a word that we use a lot. Yeah. How do you define it scientifically? What mm. exactly is anxiety? Well, interestingly, it's always individual. It's always subjective and individual to what a person is thinking, what they're thinking about, whether it's future-based thoughts or whether it's past-based thoughts. And those thoughts will be influencing how a person feels in the present moment. So a general kind of anxiety formula or approach might work for one person, but not for another, because you have to get specific. What I've written about in the book and what I'll say to you today is it's always important to consider what is the cause of the anxiety that a person is experiencing. What is the cause? Is the cause mental? Is it their thoughts? Is it something that they're thinking about? Or is it actual? Is it a situation that's happening in their life? And that could be in a personal relationship, it could be their health, it could be their job. So for some people, the anxiety will be actual, it's happening in their life, it's a situation, but for a lot of people, it will be mental, it's their thoughts, and it's not happening, but it's happening within their thoughts. And once you have an idea of what the cause is, whether it's your thoughts or whether it's a situation, you then have to consider how to deal with it. 
They're dealing with your thoughts, which the book shows you is a lot easier than dealing with situations in your life because that can involve other people and wider circumstances. But working on your thoughts to eliminate the thoughts, to learn to be more present, to learn how to relax, that can help anxiety reside, even if there's something that's actual happening in your life. So is that what you would recommend when people feel anxious? That's the first thing they can almost play detective with themselves and work out what it is that's causing it. Absolutely. And I love that because it is, it's like being a detective as a coach. We're asking questions to find out, to understand what is happening, how it's happening. So if you think, if you become that detective for yourself, is it my thoughts? Is it in relation to something that's coming up? That's at work, that's in my social life, that's with my health. Is it my thoughts that's causing these feelings? Or actually, is it a situation? Is it a situation with my neighbour? Is it a situation with someone at work? Is it something that's real in my life? But then also consider, well, how can I resolve that so that it doesn't continue to live inside of me with my thoughts and most importantly, with my feelings? So presumably you in your world and your working life, Cameron, are a very good listener because I would imagine that's job number one, isn't it? When somebody comes to see you to listen listen. and for you to help them work out what it is that's causing feelings that often people conceal, don't they? Yes, they do. And it's really important because as a coach, as a, you know, using NLP and hypnosis, it's important to listen because it's always individual to the person. It's never the point to presume. And that's where people, when they work with professionals, they get it wrong because they presume it's this or they presume it's that. If you listen to a person and you act like that detective with some questions, you'll get to the root cause quite quickly of what it is that's the cause. Now you slipped in there Mm. very subtly NLP, Mm. which I know only because I've read your books, is neuro-linguistic programming. And that sounds very fancy schmancy to me, (laughs) neuro-linguistic programming, NLP. But just before we move on with the anxiety, what exactly is that and how does that help you? Yeah, so it's a process which enables us to look at how the mind works and most importantly, what works and what doesn't work. So from an NLP point of view, the language of the mind, so to speak, is different for each person. Some people will be more visual with their thinking. They'll have pictures inside their head that they see, or even in their thoughts, there'll be kind of scenes and little mini movies that they watch play out or even that they're in. Some people will be less visual. They'll be more auditory and they'll hear their inner voice or they'll have that inner chatter or dialogue. And then you've got other people like myself who will be a combination of both. They'll have pictures and sounds. And so when you start to understand and work as a detective to elicit and get detail of what and how, most importantly, how a person is thinking, you can then understand how those thoughts influence their behaviour. And that behaviour could be just how they're showing up at work. That behavior could be just how they are at home. It doesn't have to be a negative behavior, but it's always the thoughts that influence how we feel, which influence the behavior, which ultimately influence the results that we get and how we live. Gosh, it's fascinating. The mind is is Mm. absolutely fascinating. We talk then about people often concealing anxiety and perhaps looking calm and happy on the outside. Mm. And a lot of the times we don't know whether perhaps colleagues or friends or family members are, are really suffering inside. Has social media, do you think, become a perfect disguise? And in many ways, although it has some 
positives, and we see that from your posts, for example, has it got a lot to answer for in that I look at people's posts and you do tend to think, wow, what an amazing life they're living. And often they're people I know who aren't living an incredible Mm. life and are actually really got some struggles going on beneath. So is that making anxiety worse in this decade, do you think, because we scroll and we think, oh God, Mm. they're having such a great time and I'm not and whatever. It can. It really can have that unfortunate negative influence. And I don't think we're going to know the reason why people tend to post and share what people consider as the highlight, you know, the best bits. A lot of people don't share the mundane or, you know, the monotonous things that they're doing. It does seem to be a collection of living your best life. And like you've said, that can have a negative influence on people looking at it and consuming it. So in some ways, people are masking how they're feeling and showing what they perhaps think needs to be shown online. But then in other ways, I think what's happened with social media is it's enabled the whole mental health arena to open up and expand so much more because people are talking about their feelings, their emotions, they're able to identify if they're anxious or they're depressed or even if they've had trauma. Because I guess All of that information is there in the palm of your hand. When I was in my 20s at university and experienced a lot of anxiety and fear and panic, and I didn't actually know what I was experiencing, it was just all this collection of feelings. I had to go to the library, if anything, to then go on to, you know, look online. That's if you had an appointment. Back then, you just lived with it. Also, you probably felt quite alone because... And confused, really confused by what was going on. And that can be the reality of anxiety or depression. But I think what's happened nowadays with books, with the internet in general, we can look, we can identify, we can research and we can understand. And I think that's where it's helpful. But in other aspects, I think you're right, it can have a detrimental effect, a negative impact from what people are seeing and consuming. And I think that comes down to them putting self-boundaries in place on what you're looking at. And what are the downsides and dangers of quietly living with an emotional and mental weight for years and perhaps repressing how you truly feel and hope it'll just kind of go away? Yeah, there are a few downsides. And unfortunately, when a person is in their emotions and in their thoughts and they're in some ways repressing it or not dealing with it, they won't realise the long-term effect it's having. It can almost creep up on them and become normal quite quickly. And I've seen this with many, many people over the years where unfortunately they've stopped going out for a month or two and then that month has turned into six months and a year because it's become normal to stay at home because they're so anxious. Oh, I've worked with so many people that haven't travelled for decades because of their anxiety. So it's things that they've learned to live with, but then when they've done the work and they suddenly feel free, it's like they get their life back, but then they start to almost question, well, why didn't I do this sooner? So, you know, it can have a really negative impact, unfortunately, for some people that can influence their careers, their relationships, and even their health if it's contained within and if it's held within where it's in many ways ignored. And physically as well. You talk Mm. about how anxiety manifests itself physically with heavy legs or turning or a shortness of breath. So it's Mm. not just all in the mind, is it? It's absolutely in the body. And what I'm seeing now with a lot of my work, again, it's individual with people, is their anxiety will lead them either into fight, flight or freeze. So for a lot of people, and it's always individual, if they're going to freeze, it is their legs can feel stuck and heavy they find it hard to move forward so that they feel that they need to rest, but actually their body just gone into freeze. Other 
people will be in fight and they'll just be working and doing things and you know going 100 miles an hour and it's because they're trying to just get away from things whereas other people's will be in flight and they'll just go so it can literally lead your physical response i know a lot of people who come and see you cameron they take that bold first step Mm. which is a massive step actually for a lot of people to take because so many people don't take that step or perhaps don't have the luxury of being able to come and book an appointment and come and see somebody like you. But you say that a lot of people start off the conversation with, I want to feel like the old me. Is it a case of small steps and on that perhaps long journey to getting yourself back? Because it's possible, isn't it, to get yourself back? It is possible. And the reality is you have to look at the timeline of what the person has experienced or how long they've experienced their symptoms and what the causes to those symptoms. But it's the most common thing I hear. You know, I ask people what they want, or even if in their email correspondence, they'll say, I want to feel how I used to. I want to go back to the old me before everything happened. And actually we're looking at what everything is that has happened, whether that's all of their thoughts that have kind of spiraled and built, or if there were a few experiences that have then caused the anxiety. It's a timeline of personal experiences to understand and then process and work through so that they can in many ways return to the old way that they existed, they lived, but then they've got loads of tools and techniques that they can use and work with in their day-to-day life. That's the the kind of big picture of the work. Because the mind is powerful, but it amazes me that we are never taught to use it. It's a bit like my other bugbear is the fact that we cook every day of our lives. And, you know, particularly when you're a parent, you have a responsibility to cook your children food. I cannot cook, Cameron, and I learn all sorts of nonsense at school, like chemistry and physics and stuff that I never use. But along with cookery, the mind and finances, they're things that I think we should be taught about, but we don't, do we? So we have this powerful tool that, yes, is able to sometimes, I would imagine, take over and win in a negative way sometimes, but yet we can use it, can't we? The other way mm. round to feel better and more positive. We can, we can really learn. We can really apply what we learn into our lives to feel powerful, to feel positive. And I think it was around 2012, 2013, when I started to read self-help books, I suddenly felt really inspired. And I think the inspiration that came was, why am I now in my mid-20s learning this now? Like, you know, why wasn't I taught this in my teen years? Because life would have been or could have been so different. And it can become quite an exciting journey as an adult to go into a whole new genre of reading and then applying it to your life, to your business, to your mental and emotional health. But the reality is we would have probably a very different world if we were taught it in our you know, usual and normal education. Walk me through the three stages that you identify to finding calm and happiness and banishing anxiety. I mean, we've started with self-awareness and we've touched on self-awareness, haven't we? Finding out what it is that's causing yep. those multitude of feelings. But what, what's the yes. sort of next step? The next step is self-action. So once you're aware of the cause, once you're aware of your thoughts and what's contributing to how you're feeling, you've then got to act on it. And so if you go back to the book, the acting on it would be using any of the processes on how those visual thoughts turn up or those 
inner sounds turn up and how they cause you to feel to work with them or to intervene on them or to expand the filters of the mind with kind of an evidence list. So you're looking at things in your life that aren't causing you to feel anxious that are going well and actually writing those down because an anxious mind can delete those aspects so that you only focus on the factors of uncertainty or anxiety. So you'd have to act and it can be a period of days or weeks where you're acting on your thoughts, on your mind, on your feelings to then assess how things are changing or improving or if you need to act more. And then once you've done the acting, then you integrate it, the third step, into your daily and your weekly life where it becomes normal, where it becomes a natural part and way of your being. And so the third step is new self. What does new Mm. self mean? That's really embodying the tools and the awareness into your day-to-day life. So for me now, having time personally, and this I haven't put in the book, but for me, I like aspects of silence. So I like daily, whether it's a few minutes, because I can align or tune into that inner silence and external silence, that will be part of my day. Having time to just sit and breathe will be part of my day. Whereas years ago, I had to actively make time for that to happen. But now in my new self, because that is part of my being and part of my awareness and action, it just happens. And it's habit forming, isn't it? Once you discover the daft things in life that I really appreciate. So everybody laughs at me. I have to go for my takeaway coffee to the same coffee shop and come rain or shine, you will find me (laughs) sitting outside. If it's pouring with rain, I'm under a little canopy, but I'm outside. I'm sit there with my physical diary and notebook and set my day. And I think Mm. now, having read your books, I think that's actually something very positive. There's no wonder I feel good. I'm sitting in nature, drinking a coffee, setting out the day, but it's a few minutes of quiet. It's by myself. It's Mm. just appreciating the birds tweeting or the the district line thundering by or whatever. That's almost like a meditation in a way for me because I'm not a meditator. I'd be writing my Mm -hmm. shopping list during meditation, but I guess it's kind Mm. of form of. And do you have to find what works for you? Yes, as long as it's a healthy outlet, um, <laughs> yes, you have to find what works for you. And that can be, you know, exercise, it can be sport, it can be reading, cooking, music, writing, right? We don't have to just sit in a position to experience the benefits. It can be anything. One of the things that I've, I've just realised myself in the last couple of days is what's become really normal in a week for me now is to go for a walk with a friend. That's one of the positive things that has come from COVID and the lockdowns. Like we still walk and, you know, it's raining today and we're still going. <laughs> Whereas before it'd be like, where should we meet up? Where should we go and sit and have a drink or have a drink? And now it's like, no, let where are we walking? you're right, it becomes normal, it becomes very natural without your conscious awareness thinking that this is giving me the benefit. But there's probably so much of a positive benefit from some of the things that you're doing in a healthy way. Sometimes it's acknowledging it. You touched on there that you probably had a bit of a rough time mental health-wise in your 20s. And I know Mm. that you're very open about that. You talked yesterday, for example, on Instagram a bit about that. Mm. And you've used the phrase, a piece of the jigsaw was missing. What did you mean by that it was the awareness of how to deal with it and how to understand it that was the missing piece so you know i learned like yourself and like many other people listening subjects at school that i 
never even use now or think about, you know, things like, like you're saying, finances and cooking and things like that. They're all things that I'm still learning, but probably would have benefited me more if I'd learned it at a younger age. And for me, the missing piece of the jigsaw for me and for many people is how to think how to process your thoughts, how to engage your mind. You know, we're going into a new year, as we've already spoken about, a lot of people will be out there, will be goal setting, will be kind of, you know, thinking about what they want, doing a vision board for their personal life, their business, working on their health and fitness. But for a lot of people, they'll be feeling overwhelmed. And that's the missing piece of the jigsaw, how to think, well, hang on, I don't want to feel this. So what can I do that's proactive? What can I do for my mind? What can I do for my thoughts? How can I plan to make this year more proactive to get better results? And I think that's the missing piece of the jigsaw for many people. And how did you feel in those days, Cameron? What was troubling you that you felt was causing your anxiety and and struggles? Well, the the funny thing is, I didn't know, which is the experience for a lot of people. It was a lot of feelings of overwhelm and it was a very physical response. So I would have a lot of panic breathing. My breath rate would suddenly change and my heart rate would get very, very quick. And there were a few times, you know, when I was at professional college where sometimes the room would start to spin. Um, So it felt very uncontrollable and it felt very, very confusing. But what it was, now looking back, and at the time I worked with the college counsellor, my body was starting to go into fight or flight, which I didn't know, which was a sense of panic. And, you know, we were trying to understand what the cause was, but a lot of it was to do some breathing exercises or grounding exercises to help that reside. Because as that young 20-year-old, what it felt like was not only did it feel physically overwhelming, but I completely felt out of control. And also, as you said, it was probably quite a lonely journey because when you Mm. were in your 20s, there Mm. wasn't this awareness that there is now. So did you feel a bit by yourself or that you were sort of spinning off the edge, not thinking that probably you were the only person in the world feeling like that? Yeah, I didn't know what was happening um, physically, mentally. And the funny thing was at the time, I didn't even know there was a college counsellor. It wasn't, you know, for a a month or so where one of, you know, finally one of the teachers said, are you okay? And I said, I don't know that there was a door in one of the walls where a counsellor was, you know, waiting. And it was like, oh, actually there is someone to go and talk to. And that person looking back after all my training did a lot of grounding techniques and did some NLP with me. I didn't know at the time, it just really helped. It's a complete example of how we can carry on trying to live and function with these feelings, you know, inside of us. And looking back, I probably use things like smoking and drinking with my friends to try and escape that. And it would reside, but then sometimes it comes back stronger. And that can be the difficulty for a lot of people. And now knowing what you know mm. is for you, is it just a constant? Do you just look after properly your mental health and mm. and grow as, as you're growing? And, and keep an eye on it and have techniques to make you feel good. I do. And I try to, I try to be very mindful of what's happening mentally and emotionally. And I have skills, tools, techniques, but I'm not immune because I'm human. And so we experience things. And, and I think there's some things that you just have to allow yourself to go through. 2021, my mother passed away. Um, oh. And that was an experience that even though I am equipped with tools that I know could 
take away some of that quite quickly. It's a human experience that I feel like you have to walk and you have to go through. But again, it's having the awareness of, hang on, I'm not feeling good, you know, months later, or what are these feelings or outbursts of anger coming up at my other half and things like that. So it's like, well, hang on, I need to speak to someone because sometimes you can't do everything for yourself. So then I saw a counsellor and that was a very good space to kind of redefine the relationship and the process that I'd been through. But I allowed myself and took that kind of self-accountability to set that up for myself because I needed it. Somebody once told me when he lost his mum a few years ago, and I'd got both my parents at that time, mm. that losing a parent, it feels like a chill wind blowing around your neck. And, mm. and I did experience that with losing dad in 2022, mm. even though he was a fantastic age and had, had a brilliant life. But I noticed you dedicated the anxiety antidote to mum, didn't you? Yeah, I did. And we had a really, really good relationship. And she was a key figure in my life and a lot of that I only realised after her passing. And I think that's what I got from the process of grief counselling. It was the counsellor actually said to me, it's really interesting that the one thing that we are all guaranteed in our life, we don't talk about. We kind of avoid the subject and actually the reality is it's going to happen to all of us. And she said, so what happens is when it happens, everyone can experience a sense of shock and they don't know what to say and they don't know how to process it. But actually, it's something that we all know is going to happen. And it's almost then redefining the relationship that you have with that parent or whoever it is that you've lost. Because even though their physical existence has ended, you get all these memories and you get all these feelings and you get all this learning as well that was there. And so it's about acknowledging that, processing that, understanding that. Again, for some people that can be a struggle because they don't want to go inside and face that, but actually sitting and talking and acknowledging it in many ways is honouring the person, but it keeps that relationship going to some degree. It's funny, grief is something we should add to our list of cookery and the mind and finance and <laughs> things that aren't taught at school because you're right it it happens to everybody and it's extraordinary i talk about dad a lot and you can see some people slightly freeze and bristle and yes. feel awkward but yeah. i want to talk about him because yeah. he was a massive influence yeah. you know in mine and my family's life do you use some of your not all obviously but occasionally do you draw on your personal experiences when you're helping others i tend not to because i keep it about the person and their subjective experience. There's been a few people that have stood out where I've been able to relate. And that was a difficulty coming back to work after my mother had passed. A lot of people that were coming for sessions that I didn't know about, they were talking about their anxiety, but then what had happened, especially with COVID, some people had lost both parents or both or their in-laws and things. And it was a time where I was still processing myself and I assumed we were going to be working on anxiety, but in the big picture of it, they were going through similar things that I was going through. So in that aspect, I was able to relate and actually speak from that place. But most of the time I try and keep it about the person. And how do you unwind, Cameron? Because mm. you absorb, in a way, mm. people's struggles and difficulties and anxiety and you're listening and you're taking it all into your mind. Yep. Do you have any technique yourself that you kind of let that go so that it yeah. doesn't, you're not carrying it like a weight on your shoulders? 
I practice mindfulness and a lot of my mindfulness comes from being outdoor, whether it's in the park, whether it's driving up to the woods, the heath, it's just that outdoor space and really being present there allows me to kind of switch off and to let go of the day or whatever's happening so that I can be present. And I find it really grounding just being in that natural outdoor space. And I know a lot of people feel that kind of benefit of being outdoors. I'm fascinated to know. In some ways, I feel I know you well because of all the posts mm. and that we share. It's quite funny in a way. And we've spoken a couple of times, which yeah, has been yeah. lovely, but we've never actually met up or maybe we should go mm. for a walk I one day. Yes, <laughs> but what inspired you in the first place to become a mental health and wellbeing practitioner? And how did that happen? Did you do something else first and then mm. fall into this? Or was it always a passion from being a teenager? Yeah, it, no, it kind of happened by mistake. <laughs> best things in life happen by mistake, don't they? So my kind of career journey, I was a professional dancer for 10 years. Were you? Yeah, I was a professional dancer, worked in the music industry, worked on TV shows and did adverts and things like that. And as you'll know, you're always in and out of work. So I trained as a Pilates instructor and worked teaching classes and teaching people. And that kind of became a natural progression where I kind of left the arts industry and worked mainly with the body. And then I became fascinated with the mind from reading self-help books and learning meditation. So I actually went on a lot of my trainings for myself, just for self-development, because, you know, going back to what we said earlier, I was really inspired by why haven't I been taught this earlier? So I was going on NLP trainings and hypnosis trainings for myself to because I had a meditation practice, I had a mindfulness practice for myself. So I was putting all these skills into my life. Because I was working with people, they all want to know, how was your course? What have you been like? Oh, would you do some of that with me? So I already had people there to work with and just using the processes. I was, you know, getting very good at it and getting results. And I'm a real results-based person. I like to look at where a person is and measure the progress and get a result. And it just became natural. They started telling other people. And then I started using it more and more. Then I started to see things, patterns. So I wanted to write about it because you could reach more people. And it just grew from there. That's fantastic to hear that. And you are that kind of person that I could imagine would be very easy to talk to. I could imagine there's no embarrassment or no. very easy to sit down with, I think. As the title of one of your other books suggests, yeah. which I'm also looking at now, and actually this really appeals to me cover-wise because it's all white and black. Yeah. Um, the title is Your Mind is Your Home. How to End Anxiety, Stop Overthinking and Have More Control Over Your Thoughts. The <laughs> foreword's written actually by Katie Piper. Is Katie a, a friend of yours? She is. She's a very good friend of mine. I've known her for a long, long time. She's quite an amazing lady, isn't she? She is. And of course, as the title suggests, our mind is our home, isn't it? It is. So yeah. tell us a bit about this book and, and how that came about. Well, that came about, I think, from wanting to share information or techniques with people that they could digest in bite-sized bits of information that they could use easily in their day-to-day -day life. But it was also from the realisation myself that as soon as you open your eyes in the morning, you're met with your mind you're met with your thoughts and, you know, you walk around the house and you're actually in your head space and you go for a walk and some people they're walking or some people they're walking in their mind. Like we live in this internal space. And one lady, it was this year in the summer, she came on one of my training courses and she was a yoga teacher, a Reiki healer. She does kind of lots of different holistic things. And when it came to the start of the training to teach the students to be more external and not so internal with the thoughts. She said, I cannot believe how much of my life I've lived 
inside my head on a daily basis with that chatter and with the thoughts. And because that is our permanent, from my point of view, our permanent internal environment. That's where we live. So what are the tips that you can maybe share with us? I know there's a limit to what we can do on a short podcast, but what are the tips that you can give to people listening to this today to help them to lead a bit more of an external life and also to maybe turn down a bit of that chatter that does lead us astray sometimes in our minds? I think both of the books will teach people a variety of techniques to have more awareness and more control over their thoughts. But I think the key thing is, with any of this work, and it's like anything physical, you have to put the practice in. And for a lot of people, they'll want to give up because it feels different or it feels like a challenge or it's not easy. The more you practice, like going back to what we said earlier, the more it becomes habitual. And it's the same. It's this time of year that people are coming up to where they're going to go and work out, they're going to exercise, we're going to look at their diet. But actually, it's a great time to look at your mind. And, you know, with your diet, you will practice, you will persevere, you'll have patience. The same with your fitness because you'll let it go week by week and you'll keep going, you'll motivate yourself. That is the same thing that you need to do with your mind. Whenever you start, whatever time of year you start, it comes down to practice and repetition so that you reap the benefits and understanding of what you can actually do with your own thoughts. I think it reminds me of training in the gym or anything Mm. like that, in that it's bite-sized chunks. And I think you've got to do small steps that are achievable. There's no point as a thinking, right, I'm going to overhaul my mind and how I think and I'm going to do it in a weekend. It is about bringing in small things that make a difference. And I think habits, I think I'm right in saying they take four to six weeks to form so therefore it is a practice it's a bit like a yoga practice isn't it Mm -hmm. you've Mm -hmm. got to practice it if you're going to move forward and we can go can't we from being a victim of our own thoughts to a phrase you use a student of our own mind absolutely do we always remain a student of our mind Cameron do you think I think we do because I think and this is what's happening with the kind of mental health world. It's constantly evolving and constantly developing. And if we look at the technological world that has developed so rapidly over the last 15, probably 20 years, the mental health and coaching world has also developed. And that's why we're constantly learning. It's like we learn how to use apps. We learn how to use our phones and all technology. We update that awareness, but we need to learn how to use our minds. And do you think the younger generation are perhaps better equipped than you and I were in that there's so much more information and they use yep. words like anxiety, don't they, that, yep. that I would have never used in my teenage years. I don't think I was even yep. aware of the word. 100% they really do. Um, they use the awareness, they use what's there. And from a professional observation from a lot of teenagers that I've worked with, they have less in a polite way, baggage than as adults. So if you tell them to do something, if you do this breathing exercise, if you practice being present, if you use your inner voice, they'll sit and nod at you and they'll do it. And you will see them a week later and they're like, I did it every day. Whereas an adult will start and then something else comes up or this or that because we've got that baggage because of the time of our lives. Teenagers are brilliant, which is why really I think teenagers should read self-help books and get this awareness because they will just integrate it into their life with ease. And of course, for them, there's much less of a stigma than there was years ago, because, you know, many years ago, you're seen as a bit kind of loopy if you went to see somebody, weren't you? Whereas now, I think probably we should all be seeing someone and expressing our feelings. 
Absolutely. It was seen in a negative, whereas now it's seen as a positive. I hear a lot of friends, they say on dating apps, it should say on your profile, I've in therapy or have been in therapy because that's the only person they want to date. The stigma around it has dropped. Do we all have an inner voice and chatter? Is that our subconscious, Cameron? It is our subconscious, but also it's our conscious mind. And our conscious mind tends to be 10% of our awareness and everything else is subconscious and even unconscious. But our inner voice is our thoughts. It will go into auto drive. So if a person feels a sense of threat, that inner voice will start thinking solutions or panic or, you know, anything. It's always there. It only resides really when we sleep or in deep meditation. And we can influence and change the narrative can't yep, we we can and one of the ways and i think a lot of teenagers use this to break that inner voice anxiety pattern if you recite a song or the lyrics or a poem or a rap in your head that's what you're going to hear you're not going to hear that nagging anxious inner voice so it's consciously directing your voice to say something or to deliver something which will change how you feel so in the books a lot of people will use i am calm I am safe, their inner voice will say something like that because the brain will start to believe it and the body will start to feel it. Whereas if you're saying, it's all going to go wrong, this is the worst, like you're going to feel that if that's what your inner voice is saying to you. So taking control over those thoughts and over what your inner voice is saying can change how you feel very, very quickly. We are a week or so, nine days into the new year. What does 2023 hold for you, Cameron? It's funny because I've been thinking about this and I feel a sense of peace at the moment. And I've been exploring this because peace and calm is something that is very important to me to experience on a daily basis. And I think I'm trying to think and consider how that will go more so into my work so that the people that I'm working with or the people that I'm talking to will experience that as well. But I think just kind of taking it in bite sizes week by week, a month by month and, and seeing what happens. And eventually will another book fall from your pen at some point? We'll see, not for 23, not to write for 23, because a lot of my writing comes from experience. And so I want to see what happens work-wise or what, if anything stands out from the people that I'm working with patterns or anything I feel needs to be shared. So good stuff is coming. Hopefully, yeah. Well, I hope 2023 allows you to continue to feel good and also to carry on helping so many people and, uh, and also young people because you help a lot of teenagers too. It's been so nice to talk to you. And I'd like to officially invite you on a nature walk if you, oh, if you choose love, to accept. I would, would you? Absolutely accept, yes. <laughs> good, good, good. We'll do that in, in this new year, which will be lovely. You've been listening to Coach Cameron Beddy kicking off 2023 for us with some tips and advice on how to beat anxiety and feel happier in our as the new year unfolds. I'd highly recommend you following Cameron on socials at Coach Cameron Beddy. He often posts a few words or a saying which resonate with me and sometimes, as I said earlier, helps set my day off on the right path. Don't forget to download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to yours. There are now more than 100 episodes to choose from so there's something there for everyone. I'll be at the Tower of London next week to talk to former Royal Marine Andy Merry about life as a yeoman warder, more commonly known as a beef eater. I wish you a happy and healthy new year. Take care of your mind. Bye for now.